All right, it's my turn to introduce the podcast. Film is lit with Laura and Danny. I'm Laura, the book expert. My name is Danny, the film expert. And today we're going to be covering Pride, Pride and, and Prejudice. Prejudice. Oh yeah. Oh, this is Laura's <laughs> bread and butter. <laughs> My bread and butter. This is right down your alley. Bowling alley. Bowling alley strike. Ooh, double strike. Home run. Now we're mixing up sports. So this is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare it and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. Now we are comparing Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice written in 1812. Well, from my research, you'll be impressed. Published in 1812. Oh, okay. But she wrote it 16 years earlier. Really impressed. Yeah. Wow. And she published it under anonymously. Didn't know that. <laughs> Look at her face light up. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have to do so much research between the author and reading the book at least two times, if not three. I'm sorry. I think it's okay if I slide under the radar with. <laughs> I fact. read the book too. It granted in high school, but I read it as well. Good. Did you enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> no. So here's the thing, and this is the case for both the movie um, and the original novel. Let's just clarify: we're covering the 2005 movie with Kira Knightley playing. Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, I not that wanna... piece of shit 1995 <laughs> movie with Colin Firth. Shade. Yeah. <laughs> Who is that guy even? <laughs> Colin Firth, more like... You know what I found out during my research? What? Bridget Jones' diary is supposedly sort of based-ish on Pride and Prejudice. Oh, cool. Anyway. But, yeah, no. Um, as I was saying, for the case for both the movie and the novel, both are objectively pieces of art and are mm -hmm. important they're just not my jam. That's not to say that I dislike either of them. It's just reading the novel in high school, I really struggled with. Uh, my, my focus. It just sure. is not my genre. I could tell that the actual text was eloquent and witty and ahead of its time, but I just couldn't engage with it on a plot level. The stakes just aren't really there for me and this isn't to say that every movie needs to have like really high stakes and like a plot but and an argument could be made that courting and marriages in these times were the highest of stakes like were the that's where most say. of the genre stems from it's just to me i i have trouble engaging with it now you have a film like emma that came out that's oh, yeah. that's a little bit different because they're similar, obviously kind of similar stories, um, both from James. <laughs> similar stories, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me rephrase. They're the same kind of style, both Austin works, but the, the new Emma film has such a distinct style and twenty twenty. Yeah, tone and uh, Anna Taylor Joy, who's the lead in that. Not to say that Keira Knightley is not great in, in this movie, but I mean, on Taylor Joy and Emma, different level, different like oh, incredible. Yeah. We're oh, talking yeah. Oscar level, so that's a little bit different. But yeah, both the book and the movie 
not my jam, but that's not to say that I don't admire it on um, a technical level, on a writing level, in terms of the, the quality of the dialogue, mm-hmm. but just not my jam. But Laura, let's start with your journey, your long and storied journey with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Well, to start with, I'm embarrassed that it's not a longer journey because when we decided that we wanted to cover this, sorry, when I decided I wanted to cover this in our first series of 10 I had I had no objections, though. <laughs> sure, but I did bring it up and I did put it on the list. So I was trying to remember the first time I read it and I had it in my head that I had taken a class that covered the book in college. And so I was rifling through my notes, which of course I've kept at my parents' house. <laughs> and I could not find my notes on Pride and Prejudice. And so I was, was uh, flipping through my book because I'm a little bit of a nerd. And I started writing- hey, being a nerd is cool now. Yeah, the bit the Big Bang Theory made made it so. It is a it's a thing. So, I started writing the date that I started a book and ended a book in the beginning, sort of in the cover of each book that I started reading, probably in high school. I don't remember, but I opened my Pride and Prejudice copy, and it said twenty December two thousand fourteen. So it turns out that I actually read this in my downtime in college. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did not take a class that covered it, but I did read it when I was a junior in college. And I had, I think I enjoyed it because I had already started taking lit classes. And so I was really familiar with the structure and the overall message of what Jane Austen was trying to say in a lot of her books. And so even though it does take a lot of focus to enjoy a Jane Austen novel, and I will admit, it takes a lot of focus, you know, and (laughs) even... (laughs) More focus than 15-year-old Danny had at the time. No, and I will absolutely give you that. It's a lot. And even to sit through the movie is a lot. You have to have a lot of focus because it's not something, it's it's a little bit like Shakespeare where it's not something you can just sit and sort of let sink into your brain. It's not really something that passively connects mm-hmm. and it it's not in language that is easy enough to passively let sink in Mm -hmm. and so to be fair regency language like Jane Austen's is not something that you can passively intake like let's take Mad Men for an example as I can sit oh gosh her favorite show (laughs) don't get her started as I can sit with my back to Mad Men and still visualize the entire episode that's going on behind me this is something that you need to actively participate in. And it's difficult. I'm not going to deny that. And so I understand if the first time you read Pride and Prejudice, 
you might not have understood it. That's why this is the third time I've read it, and it's still sinking in for me. And even with the movie, which I also watched in college, thanks to my friend Mandy, shout out, I am still letting it wash over me. Because I think on it, it works on a few different levels, and we'll get to that. But do you want to talk about your journey, or are you done after saying you read it at 15 and decided no. it maybe wasn't for you? Well, I was 15. It was an honors lit Westfield High School. Ooh. Shout out Mrs. Gothier. I actually had two Mrs. Gothier teachers, one in third grade, one in high school. I'm gone on a tangent. Let's get back to the story. Oh, so, yeah, I was assigned Pride and Prejudice first over the summer. So heading into sophomore year, it took me all summer. I really struggled with it. I checked Spark Notes a couple times just to clarify certain sections that I kind of had glossed that's fair. over. And that's smart. That's the smart thing to do. Right. Thank you. Or is it cheating? Who who knows? <laughs> but thank you. But but then later on in the semester we were assigned Sense and Sensibility. Miss Scothier really loved Jane Austen, and that one Sense and Sensibility I really could not get through. Like I physically I couldn't just bring myself to get to the end of it. So half of that I also Spark noted as well at the end of the semester. We watched the movie Pride and Prejudice, and this was around the time where I was really getting into the film, and I kind of was at a crossroads where I admired the craft um, behind the camera and what was put, put into the blocking of the scenes and the costumes and the cinematography and the soundtrack, but I couldn't engage with the story. And I tried to give it a shot years later in college. I tried to just watch this movie out of the blue to try to to try to expand my film palette, mm -hmm. in a sense. Still really couldn't do it, and I, was, I wasn't I was looking forward to our viewing, my which would have been my third viewing mm -hmm. of the movie, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was able to look at it, knowing the story, I could focus purely on the aspects that I love, like, like the floating camera that elegantly moves around the room and then suddenly mm -hmm. zooms in on scenes. It's very... Joe Wright, the director, is known for his epic staging of the camera. Mm. It, he's a master of that. Even though his filmography varies in quality, one thing that's consistent is great camera work, as well as um, pretty spot-on performances from the entire cast. So I was able to... Well, most the most of the cast. I kind of had a problem with uh, Carrie Mulligan's small performance in this movie. She plays Kitty, the mm -hmm. sister who's just always laughing to the point where it's it's like, is something wrong with her? Or it, it's kind of, I, I'm not really sure what's going on with her, like constantly laughing huh. all the time. It really rubs me the wrong way. Um, Carrie Mulligan, she would later go on to do some great work in other movies like Shame or in, an educated woman. That's also a great movie where she kills it. But yeah, I liked the movie. I my, my viewing was was went better than expected. So I'm pleasantly well, surprised good. about that. Yeah, I fully enjoyed when we watched it. This is the countless time I've watched *Pride and Prejudice*. <laughs> this adaptation. Uh, the first time I watched it, I was in Rawgust Library at the University of Jamestown sitting with... Bless you, what library? <laughs> <laughs> 
with uh, Mandy on the second floor. And Mandy, second shout out. Hot dang. Well, it's a cute story. We were both studying, and I believe we had just become friends. I think we were taking a science class together, and uh, I believe we had just met each other through a roommate. Shout out to Bailey. And... You're throwing out shout-outs. You're out of control. It, <laughs> it turned out that we started talking. Perhaps I was reading the book at the time. I don't remember. But she found out that I had never seen the movie. And she said, shut up. You've never seen Pride and Prejudice? And I was like, no. Well, I've never read the book, so of course I've never read the movie. And she was like, I don't care if you're not done with the book. And she literally opened her laptop and pulled it up on maybe Netflix, maybe YouTube, I don't remember, but we sat in the library and made it through most of the movie. I think we might have finished it, and I was in love <laughs> immediately. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I watched it. I probably watched it every night after that until, and this is probably the apex of my journey, I didn't mention this before, but I studied abroad in England during my senior year, and I happened to become friends with another girl who was studying lit named Amanda. And she also was obsessed with Pride and Prejudice. And so it turned out that we were able to schedule a trip to the real mansion or manor that Pemberley is based on in the movie. Mm -hmm. So it's really called Chatsworth House. And it's in Derbyshire, which is actually where Pemberley is also set. And so we got ourselves onto the tube, made our way to Chatsworth, and had probably one of the happiest days of my entire life. Just showing up on that landscape was probably more than I could handle at the time. I probably <laughs> cried a little bit. I got some incredible pictures. We took an incredible tour of the mansion where we got to see the... Do you remember in the movie where the shot is just focused on the checkerboard floor? Uh-huh, yeah. And then Elizabeth looks up and there's that huge sort of Sistine Chapel painting on the ceiling. Right. We got to see that room. We got to see a bunch of different rooms where the movie shot... And then it all culminated at the very end in a little room outside of the gift shop where they filmed the statue scene room. Yeah, the with all the statues. Yeah, okay. In the movie. And Elizabeth looks at Darcy's bust. And I also got, to, I kissed the bust. What a, what a. <laughs> when I visited. Punky bust. Oh, it was incredible. So they did actually chisel that for the movie, and I got to see it when I went to Chatsworth House. And again, it was one of the happiest days of my life. We spent our entire day there. There was a, a night fair that was there in the evening, and we experienced that. And like I said, I got so many pictures, so many memories. It's one of the best days of my life. It was incredible. So... The story continues, though, with Pride and Prejudice with me. I, that that trip reminds me. So you took some pictures on that trip, correct? We did. And Lots. you posted some pictures of you on Tinder where you first caught that's my right. eye. Swipe right. Or that's is right. that, is, do you swipe right? Yep. On, yeah. Yes. And that's where our, that's our whole journey started. Wow. 
I encourage you that you're good in those photos. <laughs> That's why I swipe right. We'll start an Instagram for the podcast, and I'll definitely post some of those because they are great. And in fact, I'm actually reading Mansfield Park in those pictures because I bought a copy when I was over there. And I took the book because I thought it'd be picturesque, and sure enough, mm -hmm. it was. So yeah. we'll get an Instagram going, and I'll post some of those pictures. There's also a picture of me leaning in toward Mr. Darcy's bust. I'll definitely post that one as well. Yeah, <laughs> get that on the Insta. <laughs> well, that's that's where our whole journey started. Okay, so let's get into the context of the novel and of Jane Austen herself. Laura, you're the expert. Go ahead. Thanks for handing it off. I want to do something a little bit differently than what we've been doing for our earlier podcast. Switching it up. That's right. And we're going to go into Jane Austen background. Heck yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go All ahead. Right. Lay it on me. So I think this is really important specifically for Jane Austen. Now, I haven't really talked about authors in the past because I think I want to go into some Jane Austen background because when I was a lit major, one of the first things that I learned was you always have to separate the author from the piece. So even if there's a narrator and it's third person omniscient or whatever in the book, you can't assume that the ideas that the book or the poem or the play or whatever you're reading are necessarily the opinions of the author. In fact, sometimes it's the exact opposite idea that the author has. So. That's a really important thing to think about when you're analyzing a piece of literature. However, with Jane Austen, it's really important to understand the context in which she was writing so that you get an understanding of her writing and the genre that she was sort of quote unquote participating in, I guess, and even starting to shape. Right. So let's kick this off. Jane Austen was born in 1775, which is about when America was proclaiming our independence. <laughs> Those red coats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Get out of our country. <laughs> red coats. <laughs> I'm, I'm English. Better. I'm He's, English. You're from Massachusetts, so and I understand how that's a little bit deeper. Gaylord is, is an English name. I, <laughs> I've descended from England. Okay. Anyway, so she was the daughter of a clergyman. And this is notable because a lot of novel English novelists of the time were, number one, male, and number two, they were of a little bit higher status, even in the fact that they were more likely more edu educated than she was. So she was not necessarily a part of the gentry class, which is what I want to talk about specifically in Pride and Prejudice. But, so they weren't poor, but they weren't extremely well off. Uh, kind of like the Bennett family in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, very similar. In fact, their oldest daughter is named Jane. Whoa. So she started at very young as a writer, mm -hmm. and this kind of just has to do with her biography. I think it's just really interesting. She started writing what is now considered, quote-unquote, juvenilia, and, which I've read, and they're extremely cute, and they're... A comp base it's basically a satirical walkthrough of all of the monarchs in England. And so she wrote these with her sister when they were really young. And they also included little sort of 
colored pencil pencil sketches of the monarchs to go along with their satirical stories. So that's kind of where she started developing her voice, which I think is really cute. And if you have a moment and if you're really interested in Jane Austen, I think this is a really interesting place to start with her early writing. I think you'll really enjoy it because it's really cute and it shows that she was very sharp and very interested in comedy from a very young age. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about the novel in the 18th century. So, like I said, not a lot of women were writing novels. However, it was sort of considered early in its development as sort of a women's genre. A lot of people, a lot of quote-unquote serious academics didn't consider the novel any kind of serious literature. It's really interesting that Jane Austen not only came at the novel from a satirical point of view, but she also rooted all of her books in a very female point of view. And that was a really brave thing to do. And I think from a modern perspective, it's really easy to lose sight and perspective of how brazen Jane Austen was with her writing. Because, like I said, women were not seriously considered writers. Right. And maybe women write poetry. And maybe women write silly stories like Frankenstein. But <laughs> women don't write literature. It's kind of where the 18th century was in terms of literary criticism. Right. That's why she posted anonymously. And she said posted anonymous, anonymously, but it was under the title By a Lady, but she didn't even, you know, obviously didn't say which lady, so kind of left it for people to assume that it was a lady of, of high status. It was like, okay, at least we'll read this book. But It's interesting, too, that you talk about sort of, I think what you're getting at is sort of a frame. We've talked about this literary device in the past, but a lot of things, a lot of pieces of literature were framed as a man writing the story of a woman or a woman's experience to make it, to almost legitimize it. In fact, I just mentioned Frankenstein, and that happens in that book, in fact. In the very beginning, it's framed by a male scientist, oh. even though it was written by a woman. Yes, so exactly. So basically all of this is to say that women were not taken seriously in literature, and that makes Jane Austen in my head, and obviously in a lot of modern considerations, very brave and very intelligent. The next thing I want to get into is how this is not only a novel, but it's also a novel of manners or a comedy of manners, which means that it satirizes a particular group or class. When In this case, it's the gentry. Oops. I Second. Just... <laughs> Laura keeps on doing that with her drinks. <laughs> Tonight it's a Tom Collins, thanks to Danny. He makes the best drinks. Certified bartender. Anyway, so it's a comedy of manners, and it specifically focuses on the gentry, which are basically, in the 18th century, included a lot of people in England. Earlier than this, the gentry class would have encompassed a more particular strata of people. It would have been probably more like knights, or, you know, ladies and barons and stuff like that. 
but by the 18th century, it came to encompass more people when social mobility became a little bit easier. And so if you made enough money to buy the right clothes, buy a little bit of land, perhaps own a home with a little bit of property, you could become a part of this gentry class. And so I think that starts to really make clear who Jane Austen wants to satirize. Because I'm sure as many good people came into this gentry class, a lot of other kind of shitty people <laughs> ended up making it into this gentry class. And we can see that really, really clearly through the character of Mr. Collins. So Mr. Collins, for example, if I can talk a little bit about him, <laughs> is very clearly sort of a lowly, dim-witted, <laughs> very silly man that nobody takes seriously. But the only reason that he can get into a position in the gentry is because A, he's a man, and so we find out that if Mr. Bennet, Elizabeth's father, dies, then none of his daughters or his wife get his property. Yeah, it's that's, Mr. Some, Collins. that's something that in the movie that every time I watch it, I'm like, man, that is, <laughs> is rough right. to be a woman right. in this time. <laughs> yeah. Like, and holy. This time. Yeah, true. <laughs> but so we see that Mr. Collins is benefited with the fact that he's a man and the fact that he has been sort of given a position of power by Lady Catherine de Bourgh. She's given him this position of clergyman in her area of influence. Oh, don't and you so... get me started on Lady Catherine de Bourgh, that piece of work. Right. I have some choice words to say about her. Yeah. So as an example, Mr. Collins is not even rich. He's not intelligent. He's clearly completely clueless in the gentry level manners. For example, in the movie and in the book, he goes and introduces himself to Mr. Darcy without an introduction. And that is a massive faux pas, social faux pas. When you it's, say without a, an introduction, what do you mean? So he doesn't have Lady Catherine de Bourgh at his side saying, oh, nephew Darcy, this is Mr. Collins. And this is how you should be interacting with him. He introduces himself, which oh, is... Oh, so, so an interaction, you mean, is kind of like a performance where someone else introduces you. Sure, yeah, I guess you could think of it in that way. But it's basically someone on Darcy's level has to introduce someone at Mr. Collins's level through an intermediary, which would be Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Because they would be on the same social, social standing, oh. but... Mr. Collins going up to Mr. Darcy is like climbing a couple social steps without having someone pulling you up. Got it. Does that so, make sense? so yeah. breaking social status, that's right. the faux pas. Right. Got it. So for everybody to see, and you can see in the movie and you can tell in the book because of Elizabeth's reaction that people know this is not the way that you're supposed to act. Mr. Collins doesn't have the manners, but he's considered a part of the gentry because he's been given the position by Lady Catherine. So that's what I'm saying about the fact that the character of the person, not necessarily the, you know, the casting, I guess, but Mr. Collins's personal character 
is not what makes him part of the gentry. It's just his social position. Okay. And so that's, that can't be overstated in Jane Austen's writing. You can't overstate the importance of the social strata. However, with social mobility now possible, it blurs the lines between sort of the morality that people used to impose on this structure. So in the past, people would use the structure by saying you can't be a lady or a baron without being morally above a peasant. But now people who were lower in status, like let's say a butcher or a blacksmith, if they were able to buy their way into the social nobility, that doesn't mean they're necessarily a good person. It just means that they had enough money to get in. Mm -hmm. And so that's really a good way of opening the door into understanding of how big a deal some of these really subtle things may seem, but they're not Mm -hmm. in Jane Austen's writing. So overall, basically this satire, oops, (laughs) there goes my straw again, has a couple of targets and they're right in the title. Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) So a lot of what pride has to do with is people having the self-importance of inhabiting this social class and not sort of having prejudice through that filter and not seeing people as they really are if they're below them socially. And then it kind of has to do with a role reversal as well with a lot of the lower quote-unquote people having the pride and prejudice to not be able to see who the people above them are because there are a lot of social expectations of how they have acted in the past and how they're supposed to act that are coloring how people are seeing them now as well right how kind of elizabeth's prejudice towards maybe the upper class combined with uh, Wickham's testimony about his falling out with Darcy, kind of this very quote-unquote rich people problems. Right. Uh, but but her prejudice combined with this testimony from Wickham, that kind of colored her view of Darcy, which she learns that is wrong, and that that's where the prejudice kind of really comes through. And, and in the pride, you're talking about Darcy's pride, his status made him think that Elizabeth would obviously say yes to his marriage right, proposal. Right, because she like, was beneath him, right, and, and she would want to marry up. Right, and she, yeah, and he came in the rain, and he was flabbergasted when she didn't say yes right away. And also his his pride um, at his status um, made him interfere with uh, Jane and, and Bing, Bingsley, Bingley. Bingley's, Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley's uh, relationship, and when it's really not really his business. I mean, he... He, he said he was being a friend, and it's like, okay, but with matters this this grand, especially in this time when marrying for economic reasons and it was such a big deal, is like it's like the biggest deal. An interference like that can be catastrophic, and, and Anne Elizabeth reacted so upon hearing the news that Darcy had had the pride in the first place to go and make such a decision and rip Mr. Billingsley. uh, You've unearthed my example exactly because in the situation where Elizabeth immediately takes Mr. Wickham's side, 
she's siding with someone who was lower in status and who had been pulled up by someone who had higher status but then was shoved aside again by Mr. Darcy Mm -hmm. because, as Wickham tells it, he wasn't good enough. And what Elizabeth has to learn is that Mr. Darcy had a better side of his story and if she had sought it out, then she would have come to that understanding earlier. And Mr. Darcy's way of proposing to her on the other side of the coin, the first time he proposes to her, is really insulting. And I understand why Elizabeth says no, because he says, you know, aside from your family and your status and all of these other things that makes you so unlovable, I love you. And she's like, well, fuck you. Excuse me. I have all of these other qualities that you didn't even mention, like how intelligent I am and how much I love to write and read and care for my siblings. And those aren't the things that you seem to care about. And those are who I am. And so you're the last person that I would ever want to marry. And that's exactly what she says. And then, like you said, as soon as they start seeing the actual person behind the social expectations, that's when the true connections actually happen. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think the most heartbreaking scene in the movie is when Elizabeth finally reads that letter that Mr. Darcy had written to her explaining mm-hmm. the situation with Wickham and they're both there in the house at the same time and they have this kind of realization that both of them were wrong. Both of them were right. victims of pride and prejudice and Elizabeth turns around to get one glimpse at Darcy to maybe confront him or to talk out but it's too late. Darcy has already left and mm-hmm. like He's disappeared. disappeared on his horse in the middle of the night. And again, that scene is so heartbreaking because... They have now both come to the under, understanding that they're they're both wrong and have done the other one dirty, if you will. But at the same time, it's too early to really talk about it. So they're just these two people who seemingly can't be in love, who are in love, but have had this big altercation that have separate separated them. And and that separation of space is also both metaphorically and physical, a big theme sure. of both the movie and the novel, kind of how I think what Jane Austen was getting at in in this society, you know, the the genteel, yes. the gentry class, is that there's all these elements, so of like egos and class structure, obviously, and social law, economics, all these things are putting a distance between People. And it's really hard to form true connections when all those other th- stuff is at play. Well, when... and I was, I was, sorry, I was going to add land ownership too. Right. Because all yeah. the manors are so, the more space you own, number one, the more wealthy you are, but number two, the more removed and isolated you are. And the more you become entrenched in your own thinking rather than sharing ideas between, you know, other yeah. people. So it's one thing for marriage in these days to be such a transaction, such a big deal for your financial standing. But to have ego thrown in there, I'm talking about like pride and prejudice, I keep on saying that, but to have that element at play too, you you get so much drama, right? It's, it's so, relationships, getting married is such a, a huge deal and things can go wrong so quickly and you have Elizabeth, who's 
seeking out a true connection, true love. But her friend Charlotte, she kind of demonstrates the the practical legal side of marriage yeah. during that time. I mean, she said at 27, which was fairly old for a woman to be unmarried at that time. Freaking old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she, you know, she was, Charlotte was already considered to be like past it by society standards and her marriage to Mr. Collins um, was, you know, one of practicality and financial security, not clearly not of love. Well, she has that great line that not all of us are so lucky to be able to make decisions based on our heart. Right. Some of us have to make a decision based on money. And yeah. it's so heartbreaking because she's such a, in her maybe 10 minutes of screen time, you see that she's such a caring you know, intelligent woman. She's clearly intelligent because she's friends with Elizabeth, but she ends up with the dumbest character. <laughs> it, well, maybe second dumbest because, I don't know, Elizabeth's mother's pretty dumb too. Yeah. And her sister's. But, yeah, she ends up married to Mr. Collins, who is just an absolute airhead. However, an absolute joy to watch on screen. Yeah, that actor's <laughs> name is Tom Hollander. He... Yeah. If you ever seen About Time, he oh, absolutely man. steals that movie. Nails that Incredible actor. Um, very Inhabits underrated. Inhabits that haircut. Yeah. Oh boy, that's like <laughs> the possible. it's like the mullet of their times. Yeah. It's like shit. It's like a short like Caesar haircut in the front, but party <laughs> in the back. Kind of a mullet. In the <laughs> yeah. Back, but curled inward toward the neck. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I'm. That's Just gonna be my awful. next hairstyle. Just these all wonderful. Potatoes. <laughs> wow, that's you one of his, portrayed one of his him. saltiest lines. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, off the rails for the third time this podcast. Fun fact about that scene between Elizabeth and Charlotte, where she says that line. Um, a couple scenes in this movie were were spruced up by writer actor Emma Thompson, huh. who you know starred in The Sense and Sensibility. She also wrote the screenplay for that movie. I can't remember if she won the Oscar for that movie. She definitely was nominated. Ah, dang, I should have written that down. I I think she won. Uh, who knows? But nominated for an Oscar, she wrote Sens Sensibility, but she was brought on for this film to do some punch-up in that scene, and she wrote that scene. That is a fun fact. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Emma Thompson, also a great actor. But, well, yeah, no, it's just... When you have status and ego involved, it's just you you do get some severe prejudice is that form and yeah I I I will admit that there is some pretty good drama in in terms of th that type of story. But. Well, and I want to go back to the fact that there is a lot of drama, and that's one of the reasons that this is one of the enduring love stories of the last couple of centuries. Because one of the reasons I think that Jane Austen is so enduring is that she is so relatable. And even though maybe her language is a little bit outdated and it's a little bit hard to penetrate, number one, I think that's one of the reasons that her movies are so great, or that movies based on her writing are so great, because it's reintroducing that drama that everybody has experienced back into your life. And... While maybe a 15-year-old kid like Danny might not be able to make it through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, 
which is fair. It's really hard. And to be honest, sometimes even as a graduated lit major, I look back at Sparknotes at some of the chapter analyses when I'm reading, like, for example, I'm reading Mansfield Park again, and I'm reading some of those chapter analyses as well. Like, it's hard. It's really hard sometimes to penetrate that language and to make it accessible to our modern age. But as soon as you do, you uncover these incredibly relatable people. Like we've had these people in our lives. Everybody's run into a mother who is only interested in marrying her daughters off. And everybody's run into a father who's completely vexed by the woman that he's married and has sort of started to write her off as a little bit <laughs> insane and unmanageable. And everybody's run into the guy who's really sexy but really hard to get to, and then he ends up being a really nice guy when you get to know him. And everybody's run into a character like Mr. Bingley who's so in love with the woman that he loves that he can't even get his full sentences out. And yeah, that he acts like an <laughs> idiot and runs off and now he's right. a fool. And, and everyone's run into someone who has run off with a, a boy sure. or a girl like Lydia does with Mr. Wickham who run off and they get hitched like with it without even thinking it through and but come you can back. see as they're riding away that they're fucked yeah <laughs> like they're not gonna stay and, together <laughs> and it's funny I was reading that where Lydia and Wickham get married they get married in Scotland uh, mm -hmm. and that was according to the research they did kind of like the the Vegas of their times because mm -hmm. <laughs> well you could said. get you could get married um, at an earlier age in Scotland as opposed to England it, it's a little messed up that Lydia's 15 when yeah. she gets married and Wickham is... It's messed up that she's... that the thing that's more messed up than her being 15 and marrying an older, like, probably someone who's, like, 23, is that it's more shameful for her to not be married and run away with him. Right. Than have her married at 15. And what's so <laughs> you know? crazy is that you learn that Wickham didn't even want... like, he... He got paid for that marriage. Mm -hmm. Darcy had he basically to... blackmailed yeah. the family and Darcy to finally go along with the marriage. Swell guy, that Wickham. Swell guy. But yeah, that goes to what you're saying. It's You can find these relatable nuggets and stuff that still is relevant to today in Austin's work. Right. Even if you have to work a little bit for that enjoyment, her sarcasm and her writing is next level. I mean, if I tried to write something like this, I would just, the subtlety in her writing, I think is really well conveyed in the movie. I think, for example, someone who's really well fleshed out in the book, but who even gets more sort of endearing qualities is her father. For example, he is sort of constantly pushing the mother away. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And there's even a line where Elizabeth ponders their marriage and says, and sort of wonders why her father ever got married to her mother because she seems like such a silly woman and her father is so grounded and caring and he cares about the important things in life. And her mother obviously is just this sort of chicken with her head cut off <laughs> running in every different direction. And, and, in the movie, it's so sweet. There's actually sort of a love moment between the father and the mother. And, you know, so, um, 
a scene in the movie that almost makes me cry every time I watch it is when Elizabeth asks her father if it's okay for her to marry Darcy. And he cries and he's like, you know, I couldn't have given you up very easily, but but he seems like if you really love him, that he's the one that I could give you away to. And he cries and he sort of says, if anyone else is in line to ask for, for Mary and Kitty's hand in marriage, send them in. Like, yeah. you know, and yeah, because that guy's had three <laughs> of his daughters be married in the span of like a, a day. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there are subtleties to Austin's writing. And when put on the screen, you can just see, maybe even if you're not exactly penetrating the language, you're understanding the actors in a way that makes you understand how relatable these characters are. So, so I was going to talk about one more thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it has to do with the scene where Elizabeth talks to her father about marrying Darcy and this is going to sort of tie it up for me but Elizabeth says to her father we're so similar talking about her and Darcy in the book that scene doesn't happen they never really get to the point where they actually get together it kind of stops where they're just deciding that they'll get married but they, they haven't talked to her father and the moment that her father sees that she's so in love is when she's talking about how similar they are and how stubborn they are mm -hmm. and how it took so long to get over their pride and prejudice in themselves to finally see who the other person really is. And that's really sort of the culmination of the book is people putting aside these things that have been made obstacles by society and finally seeing who that other person is and deciding this is who I want to be with for the rest of my life. I think that's why it's so enduring. I think that's probably why this is considered the most romantic of her novels and why this is such a romantic movie. I mean, how can you resist Mr. Darcy in this movie? Hello. Well, the visual storytelling in it is so exquisite, which yes. is why, which is what I wanted to get to. I think you have the complexity of Austin's text, but this is where I think this becomes a good adaptation of mm. the book where you bring this great complex uh, visual language. Um, I want to bring up one example of great visual storytelling. Um, it's in the very beginning with the, the dance at the town hall there where, where you get your first introduction of uh, Mr. Darcy and also Caroline and Bingley as well. So mm -hmm. you have you have the common folk, as you will, dancing. And then Bingley, Darcy, and Caroline enter silhouetted in shadow. And mm -hmm. you only see their backs, but they're at the top of the frame, signifying that these are these forces of nature that mm -hmm. are literally and figuratively above all these people. Mm -hmm. And the room goes silent, signifying their importance. And then when we finally do see them, their faces, they're walking from the back of the frame into the foreground, mm -hmm. essentially coming, coming from the back of the room straight into camera, showing that like they are pressing through the room they they the focal point they literally cut through the room mm -hmm. and are, are the focal point and then when they're talking to the bennett's for the first time 
this camera is slightly tilted down at the Bennetts to show that they are literally lower than them, signifying their lower class. And when they, they cut back to Bingley, Darcy, Caroline, they're they're above them, almost hovering them, and they're they're framed closer, and they just you can feel it. You can feel their importance. And then later on, there's that great rotating 360-degree shot where there, uh, the Bennetts are talking to, mm -hmm. uh, talking to Darcy, and that's where you get your first interaction with Elizabeth and Darcy, where Elizabeth has already overheard Darcy saying that Liz wouldn't be an agreeable partner, mm -hmm. and then she has that great retort of, what does she say exactly, along the lines of, like, you know, dancing. Right, she says, well, Mr. Darcy says, well, what would you say is a better way of inciting romance? And she says, dancing. That is, of course, if your partner is agreeable. agreeable. Yeah. yeah, and then she walks away, but then the camera stays on her, but Darcy kind of fades into the background, but he's also in focus too, kind of showing the blossoming of their relationship, mm -hmm. showing the dichotomy between their two social statuses. And that kind of visual storytelling is present throughout the entire movie. Um, I also Great. love how uh, there are a lot of like quick zooms, zoom ins and yes, zoom outs. The camera is always floating. The DP is a guy named Roman Ozin. He hasn't done a lot, surprisingly, but his work here is stunning. He wasn't nominated for an Academy Award for this film, which is I so hard to believe with the work at, at display, but this film was nominated for four Oscars, uh, Best Performance by an Actress but for Keira Knightley, Best Achievement in Art Direction, which is now called Production Design, Best Achievement in Costume Design, and uh, original score, Dario Marianelli's. Incredible. Yeah. I, speaking of fun facts, I learned a lot of the score when I was still playing piano. And it's some of my favorite, a couple of my favorite pieces are in here. The piece in the beginning and the piece that uh, there's later that uh, Darcy's sister plays. But if I could pile on a couple observations about the visual storytelling, I think that's really where Emma excels. And this movie sets up Emma's success in that. I think this movie is really good. And there are a couple of things that I want to point out that you didn't mention. One of them is when Mrs. Bennett, so Elizabeth's mother, sees the pig walking through their barn. And she sees the pig's balls. <laughs> and that's a really... It's a really great way of showing that she's sexually repressed. And it's not just her. It's everybody yeah. <laughs> in this entire era, obviously, was sexually repressed, other than the people who had rampant syphilis. syphilis. So that's a really smart piece of visual storytelling. And then I also wanted to point out that there's a hand grab between Elizabeth and Darcy when Elizabeth is getting into the carriage after she's taking care of Jane who's sick at Mr. Bingley's manor. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. So Mr. Darcy helps her into the carriage by taking her hand. And the camera zooms in on their contact, and then Elizabeth looks over her shoulder like, Ooh, what? <laughs> like, oh my god, he just touched me. Like, this is a big deal. And then it zooms in on Mr. Darcy walking away, and he's sort of flexing his hand. Right, I and, have and that note. See, right. Look at that right here. 
Well, sorry if I upstaged you, but you it's so powerful, those little tiny things. And it's those details that you can really pick out in Jane Austen's writing that I think are so explosive and powerful and that sometimes don't always come through the novels nowadays if, for readers because it's, you know, we're, we just live in a different era where holding hands is something that anyone can do. Whereas in the Regency era, that's something that could mean something so significant. And again, I don't want to talk too much about Emma, but because we're going to talk about it in a different episode, but that is where Emma takes Pride and Prejudice and just cranks it to a different level. Because in Emma, you can literally see that characters are going to get together by following their eye contact. Sure. And that is even more subtle than this movie does. But regardless, this movie does it incredibly well, and that's what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's Joe, what we should focus on. Right, yeah. Director Joe Wright also is known for doing a lot of long takes, a lot of oneers, mm. and this movie has a bunch of phenomenal one takes, like in the in the beginning, Absolutely setting up the whole great. Bennett family of Elizabeth walking into the home, and it kind mm -hmm. of, the camera follows her around, and then you're slowly introduced to all the Bennett sisters. That's great. Also, the dance scene um, yes. between Darcy and Elizabeth, that's all one take. They're kind of uh, a confrontation there, if you will, that, that grows their connection. Fun fact, that scene wasn't set up to be one take. It was supposed to be, you know, like a normal scene with a bunch of takes, but the very last scene of the day was kind of a wide shot where they're just trying to get the whole entire frame in there. And it was never planned for that scene to be a one take, but they ended up getting, get, nailing it on that take. And that's the take that was in the movie. So you have a bunch of really cool wow. one shots. Yeah, Joe Wright, he, his filmography is varied. Even though a lot of his films aren't particularly great, like uh, Pan in 2015, a take on Peter Pan, one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. Um, and also, you know, The Soloist with Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. Oh, I read that book, but I have to just a Just a terrible, terrible film. Like, awful. <laughs> but, but then he has something like Hannah, which is, like, really badass and fun. And he had directed a great episode of Black Mirror. Oh, which one? Which, uh, Nosedive. I don't think you've seen that yet. I haven't introduced that to you yet. But, yeah, no, incredible direction from Joe Wright in, in this movie, the scene, I mean, the scene when Darcy is walking across the oh, fog field. hello. Oh, what, what great staging and visuals. Fun fact about that, actor Matthew uh, McFadden, or Faden? I, I actually McFadden? don't know. McFadden? McFadden. Um, yeah. He has um, bad eyesight, so he couldn't see where he was walking, especially in the fog. So oh, well, just, that just makes it sexier. Yeah, so just uh, right behind the camera, director Joe Wright, was waving a red flag, so That's Matthew McFadden knew, where, knew where to walk. <laughs> so one of the most romantic scenes of all time, you have Joe Wright like waving a flag because Matthew McFadden couldn't even see where he's walking. So I can relate, honestly. Without my glasses, who knows where I'm yeah. walking. So, yeah, I mean, uh, again, even though this, this type of subject matter, not my jam, usually not my jam, I think there's a lot to admire with this movie. Yeah. And upon, you know, deeper analysis, it, it's kind of... You, you do find the drama in a story like oh, this. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so much drama. Are you kidding yeah. me? Caroline Bingley? 
that bitch. Yeah. She, so this is a slight difference from the book. There, Bingley has two sisters in the book. It's very slight. But she has enough attitude to carry two characters on her shoulders. Yeah. That actress is so well cast. Yeah. I love her. The well done. name is Kelly Riley. Uh, well really... done. She was really well cast. And then we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Dame Judy Dench. Lady oh. Catherine Dud. <laughs> Asshole. Deberg <laughs> dripping with the gentry class. Uh-huh. Just dripping. I mean, it's kind of obvious to cast Judy Dench in a role like this. Right. Uh, when, she, <laughs> when she showed up, I'm just like... Oh, of course I'm like, is. are we really doing of this with Judy Dench being... Yeah, I think the one gripe I have against this movie is with that scene with Kat, when she Judy Dench comes back and says, like, you'll never marry my... That scene really is only there for just to add drama, but it really... It's in the book. uh, Well, right, but I think as an editor, I would cut that out because it's not like it has any bearing, really, on their decision to get married. Darcy, it's like they... That scene happens, and then the very next scene, Darcy comes, and then they totally disregard her. Like, it it really doesn't need to be in the movie other than to show, hey, Dame Judi Dench is in this movie. Like, it's... (laughs) I, I would have made the decision to cut it, but that's my only real gripe, I think, something that is unnecessary in the movie. But, yeah, I mean, look, would I recommend this movie? Sure, I would. And I don't dislike this movie. I think, I think subjectively, it's a three out of four star movie for me. Objectively, I'd bump it up to 3.5, but I'm going to have to go with three out of four for me just because I dipped a little bit um, in the middle with my concentration, but like you were saying that like that's okay <laughs> for someone like me, but yeah, uh, three stars. Well, I am obviously partial to Jane Austen, so I obviously give the book four out of four. Also, let's consider this is Jane Austen's second published work. Impressive. I mean, yeah. slam dunk, you slim bitch. <laughs> Uh, what was going actually, off? Fun fact, actually, the scene where Caroline Bingley makes Elizabeth take a walk around the room so that Mr. Darcy can check them out, there's a portrait in the back of that shot, which is actually Jane Austen. Cool. Which I think is a really fun fact. But anyway, the book, four out of four for me, incredible. Interestingly, much more dialogue, I think, than a lot of her other books. A lot of the other books sort of take place in the narrator's third-person perspective. This one has a lot more dialogue, which I think is also another reason why it's so accessible to a lot of people. The movie was an immediate write-off, four out of four, until I saw Emma. (laughs) And so I give this, like, a four out of four nostalgically. I love the movie. I would tell anybody who loves a good romance, a good satirical shot of the gentry of the 19th century to have a good laugh at this and at these characters and then go ahead and read emma and watch the movie because it's even better amen well this has been another fantastic episode of film is lit thanks for sticking with us it i thought it was going to take a lot of energy to convince people that jane austen is a badass 
Uh, oh, but no, hopefully it didn't take too much. No, she's cool. She's amazing. Yeah. Well, listeners, you've bewitched me, body and soul. You know how, like, Darcy says. And I says, love, love, love you. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Most oddly. Sorry. Yeah. He's just so awkward in so many scenes. <laughs> it's a lovely house. <laughs> another one of my favorite Darcy moments. Well... I hope everyone finds their own personal Darcy. I sure have. Who? Uh, Who is it? It's you. Give me his name. It's you. Oh, oh, I see. I got it. We gotta wrap up. We gotta. We gotta <laughs> go. Yeah, and we'll be back next week with Fight Club. Oh boy, you better <laughs> get ready. You to might fight. have just yeah, jumped in your seat. Lord Sorry just about that. blew out the microphone. Need to buy a new one. But, yeah. All right. What are we trying to say? Oh, yeah. We're trying to sign off. Ten episodes, and we still have not figured out an ending. Well, um, bye. I think we nailed it that time. I think we nailed it at the ending. <laughs>